Welcome to She Is Your Neighbor, a show where we discuss the realities and complexities of domestic violence. This podcast is brought to you by Women's Crisis Services of Waterloo Region, a charitable organization in Ontario, Canada. I'm your host, Jenna Main. Join me as we talk to different people each week to learn how domestic violence impacts people from all walks of life. She is your neighbor, and we all have a role to play in ending domestic violence. This week's episode is called Escaping the Abusive Life of a Child Bride with Samra Zafar. Samra is a best-selling author, motivational speaker, and mental health advocate. In 2019, Samra released her book, A Good Wife, Escaping the Life I Never Chose. In this book, she shares her experience as a child bride who entered into a decade-long abusive marriage. Samra currently sits as a governor at the University of Toronto, and she's the executive director of Brave Beginnings, a nonprofit that supports women who have experienced oppression. She is also pursuing a medical degree at McMaster University. This episode is part of our six-episode Survivor series, which focuses on the experiences of survivors of domestic violence. In this episode, Samra shares her experience with domestic violence. She talks about the importance of having cultural support from your community and explains why she chose to write her book, A Good Wife. It was amazing to speak with Samra and discuss some of the details of her journey. She has been through so much and overcome so many obstacles, and it really was incredible to learn from her. Now, before we get started, I'd like to note that the following episode includes a discussion of domestic violence and abuse, which may be distressing or traumatic for some listeners. Please take care of yourself and don't hesitate to ask for help if you need it. I'd also like to thank Rogers for proudly sponsoring this Survivor Series. Hi, Samra. Thanks so much for being here today. Hi, Jenna. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So excited to speak with you, talk about your book. feel like we're going to get a lot of great learnings from you today. So uh, it's just really an honor to talk to you, and I'm really looking forward to it. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for thinking of me and reaching out. Oh, yeah. So would you be able to just start by sharing a little bit about yourself? Yes, uh, I can start by sharing uh, a little bit about all the multiple hats that I wear. (laughs) So I'm a mom, which is, I think, my most important role. And my daughters are 20 and 15. I'm also a medical student currently. Uh, I am a student at McMaster University School of Medicine. I am a public speaker and author. And uh, for the context of of today's interview, I'm also a survivor of abuse. And I like to kind of say more than a survivor, I'm a thriver after abuse. And um, really looking forward to talking about how we can not just make our, help ourselves thrive, but also give back and create a world that is safer for uh, victims and survivors. Thank you. Yeah, I love that. A threat for not just a survivor. I think that encapsulates everything a little bit, a little bit better. So I love that. And I appreciate you elaborating on a bit about yourself. I know you have a lot of accomplishments as well and have received some awards recently, um, or at least lots of awards over the past few years. So it's really exciting to talk to you again. And I just really admire everything you've accomplished so far. So I wanted to mention that. Thank you. 
So you have a book, it's called A Good Wife. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a great book and it's all about kind of domestic violence, about your experience as a teen bride who ended up in abusive marriage, which is arranged. But I was wondering if you could just start by sharing a little bit about your story for anyone who may not be familiar with it. Yes, absolutely. So I was uh, born in Pakistan. I grew up in Abu Dhabi. And when I was 16 years old, my mom uh, told me that there is a marriage proposal for me. And a few months after that, just after my 17th birthday, I was married off to this man who I'd never met before. He was over a decade older than me, and he lived in this faraway country called Canada. So a few months after that, I arrived in this country as his child bride, his teen bride, and became a teenage mom right away. I had no idea about birth control. No one talked about it in my family or community. So um, I was completely uh, dependent on him for my survival. And it took a long time for me to break free from the abuse and the oppression and the opposition against my education to be able to pursue schooling and my careers and my dreams. And uh, also, most importantly, I wanted to break the cycle of abuse for my daughters. I didn't want them to grow up thinking that it was okay to be abused for whatever reason, and most of all, your gender. So um, after that, um, when I did end up going to university. I was working multiple jobs to make ends meet and raising my daughters full-time and single-handedly and uh, taking a full-time course load at the University of Toronto. Um, I, I really only just had, you know, one sort of goal that I will get some kind of a decent education and a decent job, but I got more academic and career success than I could ever imagine. And at that point, I just felt like there was more I need to do. Uh, I can't just stay silent and take my awards and live happily ever after. I needed to do something to give back and to raise awareness. So I started sharing my story about 10 years ago. And um, over the years, it became more and more widespread. And everything I've been doing has been really about that purpose of helping people break free from cycles of oppression and um, take charge of their life and and thrive. And um, whether it's a book or the speaking or even my new career into medicine, it's all connected with that same purpose. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I read your story and it was really incredible to read it all. For anyone who hasn't read it, you have to go read the full books. You have the full background and story, but it, it's just amazing to read. And something that stuck out to me uh, at the beginning and something you're sharing just now is just how important education has always been to you since the very beginning when you were a teenager even. And there was something that stood out to me in the beginning of the book. I know you hadn't met your future husband at first and you had referred to this first phone call that you had with him. And I believe you said the only thing you asked him on that phone conversation was, will you let me go to school? And that really stuck out to me, um, just the way that the question was phrased and that it was kind of the the only thing you talked about. Um, and I'm wondering if you could just elaborate on some of the cultural dynamics that were at play there and what prompted you to ask this question. I grew up in a very confusing kind of a childhood. Um, on one hand, I was being applauded for my 
straight A's and my marks in school. But on the other hand, I was also being told that I shouldn't dream too big because I was a girl and my purpose was ultimately to serve a man, that I shouldn't have all these ambitions and goals and um, I should stay within my limits. So it was like, so am I supposed to be brilliant in school, but at the same time, not supposed to dream too big or, or uh, you know, on one hand, education is encouraged, but then there's like some kind of a ceiling that's set on it that, you know, you can't dream too big. You can't go to school too much. You get enough education so you get a good marriage proposal, but not so much that you start to make men feel insecure. Uh, so those mixed messages were very confusing growing up as a child. And and then when when this marriage was arranged, it was painted to me as my opportunity to go to school. Uh, I want, I had big ambitions. I was extremely academically driven. So I wanted to go to the Harvards and the Stanfords of the world. But I lived in a family and in a culture and community where girls weren't allowed to go to school, especially abroad. No way. Like, I mean, you could go to university in Pakistan and I'm sure there are good universities there, but I had bigger dreams. And, and, and I was told that, no, it's, you know, just, um, stay within your limits. You can't really go anywhere by yourself. You know, my parents would say to me, it's not like we can send you anywhere by yourself because you're a girl who'd going to, who's going to be your chaperone, who's going to guard you, who's going to watch over you, etc. So the idea of uh, girls being independent and living their own life and going to school and another country, all of that was very, very alien. And I knew that my family would never be able to first afford that. And even if they could afford it, they would not send it, send me or let me, let me uh, pursue that because of the cultural stigma and shame associated with it. So when this marriage was arranged and, and my parents portrayed it to me as, as if that was the only way that I could go to a good university. Uh, my mom said that this is your ticket to education uh, because his family, my ex-husband's family, promised my parents that they would send me to university in Canada. So in my naive 15-year-old head or 16-year-old head, I was sim- thinking, simply thinking this was, uh, this was my way to go to school. I didn't really even think about marriage and cooking and cleaning and husband and all of that. Like, so when, when it's really started sinking in that this is happening, I was terrified. I started having nightmares. I would wake up in the middle of the night, like crying and that I don't want to go through with this. And what if, what if he doesn't allow me to go to school? Like one time I had a nightmare that I was, um, I was in a bridal dress and I was standing outside a gate, which was locked. And at the, on the other side of the gate was a big, uh, huge school, like a big university, but I couldn't go in because I was married and the gate was locked to me and I was in my bridal outfit. So I woke up in a sweat and I was just terrified and I called, uh, and I, and I started screaming. My mom came into my room and my mom was like, okay, why don't you talk to him? And, and, uh, he can appease your fears, so to speak. So my mom called him and then let me talk to him. And the only question I asked him, will you let me go to school? Because that was the most important thing uh, for me. Uh, and when he said yes, and he reassured me in, in a few words that, yes, I will not hold you back, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
that's kind of when I thought, okay, maybe everyone's right. And even then I had a lot of fears and I didn't want to go through with it. But, you know, when you're in that cultural context where everyone tells you that this is the best thing that could ever happen to you, you are so lucky that you're the first girl among all your cousins and friends to get married. You're, this is such a big accomplishment uh, that you've, you've gotten close to the real purpose of being a girl sooner rather than later. Uh, Everyone tells you that if you if you refuse it, you're going to be ungrateful. What child is going to refuse it? You know, and, and so even though the voice inside my head was like screaming no, that voice was muted by all the other voices around me that were telling yes, you should you should go with it. So, um, so I just um, silenced my own inner voice and um, and went through. And and I think the only consolation I had really about it was that yes, maybe this is the way I can go to school. And unfortunately, I know that's not exactly how it turned out for you either. Um, it wasn't kind of what it seemed like it was going to be at first. I know you eventually made your way to school, but that was from your own um, hard work and socking money away secretly and everything. So uh, it didn't exactly turn out the way you had hoped from my understanding. And from what I read, it seemed like gradually he became more controlling. It wasn't there right in your face at first, but, you know, he kind of slowly started to take away some of your independence. And over time, it escalated to physical violence as well. Um, But despite all this, I know you said at one point in the book, I believed my unhappiness was my fault. And I wonder if you could just elaborate on why you thought this. That's such a great question. And I want to touch upon what you just said about, you know, gradually he became more controlling. That is most of the time how abuse works. Uh, Abuse rarely, especially in a domestic setting, it rarely ever starts with a slap or a kick. It's not like somebody's wonderful and kind and loving, and then suddenly they wake up one morning and they start beating you up. That doesn't happen. What abuse really looks like is it's very, very insidious. It starts off with a lot of love and romance that is sort of uh, oftentimes constructed by an abuser to make the victim feel like they can trust the abuser, to make them feel like, you know, they can rely on them, lean on them and be vulnerable. And then when you get into those vulnerabilities, that's when you really start to not be able to see Uh, You know, it's like, I I use this analogy that, you know, um, it's like taking a frog and putting the frog in cold water and, uh, and then turning up the heat ever so slightly. And the frog's body temperature keeps adjusting to the heating water until the frog actually boils to death without even realizing it. And that's how insidious abuse is. It starts off with these underhanded compliments, these little attacks at the way you think or dress or speak. It's really chipping away at your sense of self-esteem and self-confidence to the point that, you know, you're always trying to win back that love that you saw in the beginning, that love that was almost like a smokescreen that you saw. And, 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 you know, my ex-husband, for example, you, as you read the book, you must notice that in the beginning, he seemed like he was so wonderful. So, after that, when I, when all these abusive innuendos and com- comments and uh, and bad words and all those things started to show up, I was like, how can I get that 
loving person that I saw in the beginning? How can I get him back? What can I do to win him back? And, and whenever I would ask him why he treats me the way he does, his answer was because you deserve it. I don't respect you because you don't deserve respect. So when you hear that over and over from the person who seemingly loved you so much, then you think it must be my fault. I've let him down. He loved me and I lost that love. You know, you don't really recognize that it was never love to begin with because no one teaches us that, you know, no one teaches us. And, and, and when we look at movies, a man who buys, who tells you I love you in five days is now love at first sight and you get married and live happily ever after. Like, whereas in real life, actually, that's a big red flag. It's not romantic. You know, that's love bombing. This person without even getting to know you is going to spend the rest of his life with you because he, he knows he can control you and make you who he wants you to be. Right. So especially in the case of child marriage, the reason that people pick child brides uh, is because they're so young and you can really mold a child into whoever you want that child to be. Right. So um, that's what happened in my case. And because I was that frog in that heating up water, constantly believing what was going on around me and my level of tolerance kept adjusting based on what I was facing. So yeah, I know he said a bad word, but he did last week as well. So that's kind of normal. Whereas like six months ago, that would not have been acceptable to me. Right. And when you say one bad word, you let, let it, let them get away with it. And then the next time it just kind of becomes habit. And then eventually when the bruises appear on your body and you're sitting there contemplating how, how did I get there? You're already stuck in that thought pattern that it must be my fault. And you've, you've internalized it. So it, 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 it's very methodically created to give the victim a sense of this is all my doing. Uh, and then the victim still tries to keep appeasing the abuser because they want to get that, you know, person back who was in the beginning so wonderful. Um, so a lot of abusive relationships follow that same pattern and all these phases last for maybe, you know, different times, but they all are there. So there's a love bombing and then there's like the devaluing and then eventually when the signs of abuse kick in and sometimes, you know, in a lot of cases, physical abuse never even happens. And a lot of victims don't recognize that this is abuse because there's no hitting like you know because our society thinks if it's not physical then it's not happening whereas a lot of non-physical abuse such as emotional psychological mental financial abuse is actually far far more damaging than physical abuse in my case for example i don't even i hardly even remember the times that he actually hit me like what the words uh, that he used to say every day the way he used to treat me the way he used to look at me as if i was something dirty and disgusting like the way he used to um reject me every time or pull me down and and tell me that I was good for nothing. Those are the things that I still am healing from after 10 years. So um, because those chip away at your sense of self, they rob you of your soul and the bruises on your soul are far deeper sometimes to heal than the bruises on your body. I'm glad you explained that because I think it's so true. People often think of physical violence when they think of domestic violence or abuse, but don't always think about the emotional, psychological, financial, which you also experienced. And the psychological, like that power and control 
it can be so dangerous. I remember reading your story and thinking when it got to the point you weren't allowed to go anywhere without his permission, you were basically a prisoner in your own home, it seemed like. Like that scared me, but I appreciate how you explain how it was so gradual over time. It wasn't something you noticed right away. It wasn't something you um, agreed to. It, it was so slow. And I really appreciate the analogy with the frog too, because I think that it paints a good picture of of how these things can actually unfold without you almost even realizing it. And even when it gets to that point, it's not like it's always bad. You know, it, it's there's always good moments mixed in there. Like there's this, actually a cycle of, that happens uh, which actually when I, uh, that was the thing that I saw that really shook me to my core the first time I attended a counseling session, uh, because the cycle of abuse is there's this honeymoon period where everything is great. You think this person is, loves you. You're having a wonderful time and everything's awesome. And then tension slowly starts building up. And then there's a trigger that results in an explosion and an a incident of abuse, which may last an hour or two or may last a few days or longer. And then as soon as the abuser feels that this, you know, now I've gone a bit too far and, and she might leave, then they turn on the love again. And, and then after, and you're hooked back in and then, you know, you, and then again, the cycle begins, right? So, and sometimes the cycle lasts for months or years, or sometimes it, it's very quick. And I cannot tell you how many times my ex-husband apologized to me, cried in front of me, told me he will change, promised me the stars and the moon and, and, and the romantic gestures sometimes and the, the words and the, the vows and the promises and, it was so much that you start feeling almost guilty for leaving that person. You start feeling that, oh my God, he's trying so much. He's making this effort. And their abusers are masters of playing the victim. So they would blame everyone, you know, job loss or, you know, I got pissed off at work or anything that really on their mood swings. Uh, and the victim's like, oh, maybe I should be kind because the victim's usually a loving person and they're usually an empathetic person. So they want to be kind and they they feel almost even, you know, a lot of abusers also try to give the impression to victims that you can heal me with love. I need your love. I need your support. And as an empath, the victim's like, yes, 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 I will love him to make him make him heal and get him better. Right. So uh, uh, that's why you keep getting sucked in. And a lot of women don't stay because they start believing those promises. And then and then the abuse happens again. And then you get into that cycle again. So it 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 becomes it's very gradual and it becomes more and more frequent and more and more violent. But it's, it doesn't happen overnight. Yeah, exactly. And, and like you said, it's not always something you recognize right away. Like I know you had mentioned, it kind of seemed like a, a bit of a turning point in the book. You had talked about attending this parent drop-in center that you were able to go to. And there was a Pakistani woman who ran the group there. And you had said you thought she recognized the abusive situation before you even knew what it was or what to call it at the time. Uh, and this stood out to me too. And I was just wondering if you could explain uh, why it was so helpful to have someone from your own community there who acknowledge what was going on? That's a great question. And, you know, when you think of abuse, um, a lot of times you hear things like, oh, this only happens in this culture or this only happens in this religion, which 
is completely false because abuse is universal. Uh, there are one in three women in North America who are being abused or affected by intimate partner violence. And that's an underreported number because a lot of times abuse most of the time is unreported. You know, shelters across Canada are always full. There are wait lists of, you know, up to even 3,000 kids and women every night who are turned away from shelters because they're full, right? Um, A woman will go back seven times to an abuser before she's finally able to leave because of these cycles of toxicity and people telling her like, oh, come on, it's not so bad, go back, et cetera, or, or just, you know, a lot of barriers. So abuse is sadly universal. It's heartbreakingly universal. But the barriers to leaving and speaking up and escaping are very varied across cultures. So, and where I was coming from, as a child bride who was utterly and completely dependent in every way on her abuser, as a teen mom who had no idea how to go raise the kids, as a Pakistani woman who were in my coming from a family where no woman ever had left marriage ever in all generations my mom stayed with my father even though he was abusive my grandmother stayed my aunts were all staying and abuse was so normalized that you know a woman would rather die than leave marriage because a woman's honor uh, and identity is completely tied to being a good wife And a good wife means a silent wife and a tolerant wife and a submissive wife. So coming from that, like imagine as a Pakistani Muslim woman who is raised that way and there's no family support, there's no financial independence uh, in a country that is completely strange. uh, And I have no idea, like the only thing that was going for me was that I knew how to speak English. But other than that, like no idea how to how to fit in and what support systems are out there or will I lose my child because if I leave him because he has sponsored me to Canada you know all those no no idea about my rights uh legally or otherwise it is extremely difficult for me to leave much much harder for me to leave than let's say a white woman who was born here raised here went to university had a group of friends had a good job um you know and then uh, had a supportive family and then found herself you know, in an abusive relationship, again, no fault of her own because abuse is never the victim's fault. Uh, and it could, it could happen to anyone, but you see like abuse is happening in both places, but how difficult, how much more difficult it is to leave for women in certain cultures. So that's why it's really, really important to have this cultural sensitivity and intelligence when we are supporting victims and survivors. And that's why it was so important for me to have somebody who actually understood my culture say to me, this is abuse. Because what I would hear is like, oh yeah, white people would obviously say it's abuse because they like getting divorced or whatever, right? That's the general sort of consensus in in those, in certain communities. But, but Here's a woman who is from my culture who understands this and is calling it out for what it is. And that was very, very empowering. So, uh, and it was very validating, most of all. Like, yes, I'm not crazy because everybody around me from my family, his family from the culture was telling me that I'm crazy for feeling this way. So here was someone who else, he thought I wasn't crazy and, um, and that what I was facing was wrong. And that was very validating. 
That's great to understand. I I really appreciate you elaborating on that. And I think it's just such an important piece. I know it's something we see too at our organization. We have our two emergency shelters for women and kids experiencing domestic violence. We also have an outreach program. And one of our newer roles in the outreach program is focused on specifically supporting diverse communities. So we have an outreach worker in that role who has built partnerships with Canadian Arab Women's Association, lots of different local groups, because I think the more we can get connected with women from different backgrounds and provide support networks within their own support networks um, and see how we could be a resource to them, I think that can make a big difference. Like you're saying, you know, it was someone already in your community who is there and able to understand and support you in a way that someone else wouldn't be able to understand. So really appreciate you highlighting that piece. I also appreciate how you highlighted all the obstacles and barriers you faced, you know, just wasn't one simple thing. And then you'd be able to leave, you know, you had your child to worry about. There were the finances. You're completely isolated. You didn't know anybody in Canada. Your whole family was back in Pakistan. So it was a lot more challenging for you. Um, And then the cultural expectations as well of you staying in the marriage, like you said, and being a good wife. But in the end, it was interesting to me, the relationship ended up ending because your husband at the time asked you for a divorce. And I was curious to ask you, do you think the relationship would have ended otherwise or or would you have been able to leave if it didn't end in this way? So I'll just, I'll just, uh, clarify, um, you know, what happened actually. So he didn't ask me for a divorce. He divorced me because in Islam or in, in the version of Islam that his family follows, uh, and, and so does my family, is that a man can say divorce to his wife three times, just say it, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, and it's done. So one day in a fit of anger, when he was charging towards me to hit me, I picked up the phone and I said, I will call 911 if you lay a finger on me. Because by then I hadn't learned enough about abuse and my rights and stuff that I was courageous enough to speak up and resist it. So in that moment, he 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 was so he got even further angry and he, in a way to punish me, basically said, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you three times. So I had already gotten to a point then by then that I was I wanted to leave him. I was going to leave him. I had I had everything sort of mapped out that, you know, I will, I will get my degree and job and whatnot. And I was already in university. So emotionally, I was already done. So when he said this to me, I divorce, I divorce, I divorce you. It became almost like a catalyst for me to just expedite things. I used that Islamic divorce as as an excuse, as ammunition to basically say it's done. Because before, if if he hadn't done that, then it would have almost been like um, maybe more difficult for me to explain it from a cultural point of view or religious point of view because my family and his family were extremely religious. So, so because he gave me that Islamic divorce, now the now it's just natural that the legal stuff will follow through. But it still wasn't easy. It was extremely hard in the sense that I did face a lot of stigma because even if a man is the one who says the divorce, it must have been the woman's wife because she would have done something to deserve it, right? So there was a lot of that. There was a lot of like uh, going through barriers of poverty and even on the verge, I was on the verge of being homeless with my daughter. So it was it was very difficult, but uh, I had already uh, come to a point where it was going to happen. It was inevitable. Like I had already 
checked out of the marriage for a long time before that happened. So yes, absolutely. It, it, uh, I would have left, um, it, the fact that he did that just kind of maybe acted as a bit of a catalyst or move things along a little bit quicker. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And yeah, it was interesting reading about how you're able to go to school and access the different counseling services there and learn more about the cycle of abuse and everything. So it did give you a little bit more power, it seemed like. So that was that was really great to see as well. Um, something else I wanted to ask you was, I thought it was just so brave of you to be able to write this story and share it so publicly. I think these are things that are really difficult to talk about. And, you know, you shared really intimate details of your life. So I just thought it was very brave to be able to come out and do this. And I was wondering what kind of led you to share your your story publicly. Um, and if you were worried at all about your safety or if there are any concerns you had when when you did this. When I graduated from university, um, so I was in my second year of university when I left my marriage. And the next few years, I was working multiple jobs, raising my girls, going to school full time. It was a very tough time. And I, and like I said, I just wanted to get a job and get a, get a decent education. But then I got so much recognition. I was named the top student in the entire University of Toronto. I was, uh, I was awarded many, many uh, awards and scholarships. And at that point, I was like, I, I felt a deeper sense of purpose. I was like, I can't just take my awards and ha- live happily ever after and ride off into the sunset. What about all those thousands and millions of women that are still trapped? Because I knew by then that uh, through counseling and just being out in the world that this isn't just my story. This is the story of millions and millions and millions of women and girls in across the world, in every culture, every background. And I and I felt like I needed to be part of the solution and I wanted to make a difference and I wanted to break the silence for the millions of silences that were still waiting to be broken. And I decided to share my story because, again, I know, I know that my story isn't just my story. And I've, I'm the lucky one who got away, who was able to survive and thrive. But there are so many women who are still trapped in those cycles of oppression and sometimes not even recognizing that they're being oppressed. So um, uh, that's why I started to share my story and it's led to all the work that I do today. But every day I feel like I'm just getting started. And I was worried about my safety and there are moments when I still am worried about my safety uh, because um, what I have, what I speak about is a lot of times intolerable to people who are the perpetrators of patriarchy and misogyny and sexism and racism and whatnot. And, and uh, a lot of times I do get targeted. Sometimes I get hate messages. I have received death threats, mostly from Pakistan, but, you know, there are people who, who have a lot of problems with what I'm talking about. So I did uh, at that time, I was worried about my safety more from a cultural standpoint, uh, because his family spread rumors about me everywhere that I was sleeping around and I'm making up all these lies and to become famous. And a lot of people think I've made all this up to uh, to to become famous and for my self promotion, which is which is, you know, if you think about it, there there are women from all walks of life and all backgrounds who who face these like oh she slept her way to the top or she's doing it to get famous like no woman would put out there that she was abused or raped or whatnot to become famous like it's just so convoluted but that's unfortunately the kind of society 
we often live in. And a lot of times it's women who do this to other women, right? So um, I think I have always been more worried about my, even though there has been worry about my physical safety, but the bigger worry has always been about my psychological safety and, uh, and that of my children. And I think even today, like I take precautions, for example, I, I would not go and visit Pakistan. I'm not saying that the country is bad. I, there's wonderful people there. There are my friends there, but I, I am. I, I think as a as a mother, I I'd rather err on the side of caution, simply because my family is a big big part of the people that are against me, and I wouldn't really trust my family with my safety. So that is one thing, and uh, and and then I have made a lot of barriers in my life and boundaries against uh, you know people who try to bring me down. Like I try not to go on social media and read comments on my posts or, or, uh, especially like with, with some of the more public things like Ted talk and whatnot. And I just uh, try to, um, create a very validating safe space around me with a good support system so that it doesn't, it doesn't affect me more than it has to. Yeah. That makes, that makes a lot of sense to me. Something else that, um, this project, it's called She Is Your Neighbor Project and podcast. And something that we're always wanting to encourage people to do is to be good neighbors to those who are experiencing domestic violence. And I was wondering if you could share from your perspective um, how you think we can all be better neighbors to those who are experiencing this. That's a great question. And sometimes, you know, we think that by talking to somebody, we might create more harm than good. So we don't want to meddle in their private affairs, or we're not exactly sure how to open that conversation, even though we want to help, but we're like, we might, I don't know how to approach them, et cetera. Right. And we think, or what is it that I can do? I can't really do much. You know, I can't really help them with housing and um, job search and all those kinds of things. But it's really important for people to realize that the most important thing, the most life-changing thing that people need, victims need, is human connection and kindness. There was a time very early in my marriage. So these were the first five years of my marriage were the, were the worst years of my life. And the only place I was allowed to go was to that um, Ontario Early Year Center where I would take my daughter for uh, drop-in classes twice a week, which is where that Pakistani woman who ran the center talked to me. And as I was one day coming back from the center, um, I went to the Tim Hortons to buy my daughter a donut. And I would never have any money on me, but I would find coins in, lying around in the house, like loonies and toonies, and I would put them in my purse or in my jacket. And I was I was absolutely sure that I had a toonie in my purse. So I felt very proud of myself that I'm going to buy my daughter a donut. And I went in the Tim's and I ordered the donut. She bit into it and then I couldn't find the toonie. I turned my purse upside down, my pockets inside out. I couldn't find it. My hands were clammy. I was so embarrassed. I was so humiliated. And then there was a man behind me who said in a kind voice, ma'am, can I buy you a coffee? And can I buy her a donut? And he paid for it and he left. He never, I'm sure he never even thought much about it. And, you know, I, I'm sure he doesn't recognize me. But in that moment, while I felt so humiliated and embarrassed, I went out of the Tim's and I sat on the bench and I was crying and feeling powerless. But at the same time, I also felt a glimmer of hope 
that maybe the world out there is not as bad as my ex-husband made it out to be. Maybe there are kind people. Because one of the things that abusers do is isolate you. That's the biggest tool that they have to control their victims. So they will tell you things like, um, you're never going to make it on your own. People are bad out there. This is the best you can get. I treat you so well. What do you think? It's going to be a nice world out there that's going to really lift you up, etc. So a lot of victims think, I got to stay because this is the best I can get. And you know, change is scary. You don't know what lies ahead. You don't know if you're going to find people who will support you. You don't know if you'll be isolated or not, right? So moments of kindness like that man extended towards me in the Tim Hortons 20 years ago, they show us that it's not a bad world out there. There are good people out there. There is hope. There will be people eventually who will support you and lift you up. And you know, I sit here because I found so many of such people who lifted me and championed me for who I was rather than the box that I was supposed to fit into. And I wouldn't be here without them. So whether you can make any difference or not from a practical standpoint, even just a few kind words, just moments of empathy, a smile, a conversation, it can help so much. You know, I wish some of my neighbors had come to me while I was living in that house, a prisoner in my own home, and just befriended me and just been there. With, not just to talk about abuse, but anything. Like shown me that I was worthy of connection. I was worthy of respect. I was worthy of kindness. And that happened to me when I went to university where my friends and my new professors and everybody was treating me with kindness. And that's what ultimately gave me the courage to be able to leave. So. Women who are experiencing domestic violence are facing intense isolation. And a few kind words, smile, whatever from your end can help reduce that sense of isolation, can help eliminate some of that fear, can spark a light of hope in their minds and their hearts and their souls that maybe I'm not alone. Maybe I won't be alone. Maybe it's not going to be doomsday if I leave. And that is the most life-changing gift you can give to somebody experiencing abuse. Thank you so much for being here today, Samra. I know you would have provided a lot of hope yourself today to anybody listening and who might be in a similar situation or or who even was before. So thank you so much. I'm, I'm just so grateful to have the opportunity to chat with you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It was wonderful to be here. That wraps up this week's show, but the conversation is far from over. We want to hear what you think. Use the hashtag SheIsYourNeighbor on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, or Twitter and join in the conversation. We all have a role to play in ending domestic violence.